Hey everybody, it's Adam Shartoff. I just want to give a quick message before we start the show. Filmwax Radio just launched a Patreon account. You can find it by going to patreon.com slash filmwaxradio or just go to Patreon and search Filmwax. It'll come right up. Rewards start at $3 a month. You know, it's taken uh, 10 years for me to get this together. And I'm finally, if you're a regular listener of this show or you love to support independent film and shows like mine, which are an extension of that, please consider contributing. The amount of time and resources required to do a show like this, plus the YouTube show, is extensive, far more than you might might think. And so, like a lot of other people, I'm just sort of saying, if you want to show your love for the show, I would appreciate it. And there's all sorts of wonderful, wonderful rewards. Of course, additional content that nobody else is going to see or hear, and much, much more. If you just, again, visit patreon.com slash filmwaxradio and consider it. That's all I'm asking. Thank you very much. And now, on to the show. Everybody, it's Adam Shartoff, your host of Filmwax Radio. It's Friday, July twenty third, two thousand and twenty one. This is episode six hundred seventy eight of the podcast. Two wonderful guests, two wonderful segments. We have Jamila Wignot returning to the podcast after oh nine years <laughs> to the show. It's just very funny for me because. I, I just, I, it's it's hard to wrap my mind around this idea that I've been doing this show for as long as I have. But uh, back in November of 2013, Jamila and uh, another filmmaker, Sierra Pettengild, co-directed a documentary called Town Hall. And uh, all these years later, I have Jamila Wignot back on my show to talk about her new documentary. It's called Ailey. Then, first time on the show, Garrett Price documentary filmmaker who made a documentary called Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, which is premiering on HBO and HBO Max today. Both both films are premiering today. So first, we're going to talk to uh, Jamila, who I was so happy to have back on. But just so you understand, both of these segments that are on this episode are both available, if you prefer, to watch on our YouTube channel. If you go to youtube.com slash filmwaxradio, you can watch my segments with uh, Jamila and with with Garrett. All right, so we're going to talk to Jamila first here. And her really, I found, moving documentary about the, of course, world-famous dance company founder and, and choreographer Alvin Ailey. Many know the name Alvin Ailey, but how many know the man? Ailey's commitment to searching for truth and movement resulted in pioneering and enduring choreography that centers on African-American experiences. Jamila Wignot's resonant biography, a hit at Sundance and soon to be seen at the Tribeca, and uh, a hit at Sundance and, and the recent, a hit at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival and Tribeca Film Festival, grants 
heartfelt access to the elusive visionary who founded one of the world's most renowned dance companies, the Alvinelli American Dance Theater. Told through Ailey's own words and featuring evocative archival footage and interviews with those who knew him, the film interweaves the creation of a new commission inspired by his life to show the enduring power of Ailey's vision. I know the film premieres today in New York City exclusively. It's going to be at the Angelica Film Center in New York City, as well as the Eleanor Bunnan Monroe Film Center at Lincoln Center up on the Upper West Side. Check the uh, neonrated.com website for details, but I do know that the film is supposed to expand nationally as of August 6th. Here it is, welcoming her back on the show. Here's my conversation with filmmaker Jamila Wignot, only here on Film Wax Radio. Do you feel as though you had to sacrifice anything to stay in dance? Everything. The Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater is one of the most important contemporary dance companies in the world. People were just, oh my God, they'd never seen anything like it. Choreographers start with an empty space, a body or two, and we say, carve the space. I love creating something where there was nothing before. I was born in the Depression, 1931. Rural country, tough times. When I was 14, I discovered the theater. And it touched something in me. But there was no bodyguard. Alvin entertained my dreams that a black boy could actually dance. Being able to say through the choreography, I am... It transcends dance. Hi, Jamila. Hi. Can I just start off saying how much I enjoyed your documentary? Thank you. You're very welcome. There's a thing that got successfully put across, which is just this, the inner beautiful, this vision, maybe a vision is a good way, that, that Alvin Ailey had. And it, it's like, it, I think it cost him everything. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I know even in the notes as the film is described or as he is described in the press press materials that, you know, he was so enigmatic and he still remains on some level enigmatic. But you you guess you turn to the work, right, for the answers, ultimately, perhaps, or, or those who knew him best. Yeah, I think it's always an interesting um, question with uh documentary portraits and and about artists i mean we value them because they the work that they make and i think for us setting out we were very interested in exploring a kind of story of becoming and 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 working to ensure that you were getting to know somebody and getting to know their conflict but what we learned had to be about the the artistic journey as well kind of at every at every point um and I I think that's a subjective choice obviously but for me I want to know about like the work and how the work gets made and what inspires the work um I want to know something about the person um but uh but yeah I think the enigma at the center of that was a surprise you know even insofar as he remained elusive to his to even his closest collaborators the interview we did with Mazazumi Chaya was one of the last ones we did 
Um, and, you know, when he shared that idea of I'd worked with him for all these years and he invited me one time to his apartment and, and I didn't want to go, you know, there's an interesting question there about he had held people at bay and then eventually that kind of people wanted to keep him there as well. Hmm. Why do you suppose that is? I don't know. I mean, I think that the requirements of public life were enormous. And I think to protect himself in some way, he needed that private space where he could close the door and, and he, he wasn't responsible for anything or anyone anymore. Um, and then I think the need to see people as iconic figures, I don't know, you know, I think it's, I want, I want people to stay, mm -hmm. we, we want people to stay on their pedestals, you know, it's, not, sure. it's easier that way, I think, to see people as kind of perfect icons than to deal with the messiness of their lives. Mm. That's obviously very true. Yeah, we're, there's a dichotomy where we want to understand what makes our, our heroes tick. On the other hand, we also expect them to be flawless. I mean, these are generalizations, but they do make sense. And, and then there's that very famous saying, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's like, don't get to know your heroes <laughs> or, you know, they'll inevitably disappoint you because, you know. I, I totally understand that. But since we're on the subject, how do you feel like you learned about Alvin uh, Ailey? I mean, what do you... I think it's what you said, you know, to start the conversation, this idea of like the vision that he had and the sacrifices he was willing to make and the idea that he did, he was willing to, to sort of dedicate it all, um, you know, to this one this sacrifice one, yeah. yeah and, and everything. I, yeah yeah I think you know it's fascinating to find somebody who in the end maybe it seems that his his value is in the work that he does and maybe right. only there um yeah we shouldn't romanticize that I mean he he's he gave his life to this I mean and you know his entire life he died right and in a way you could argue as a result of his dedication to how he chose to forge through it but we shouldn't romanticize it. on the other hand um look what he did you know <laughs> he, yeah he made, some, an, he made all yeah. these incredibly beautiful uh pieces i mean yeah it's interesting to think about that from today's perspective and i think there's questions around that like we don't want to glorify we don't want to make a martyr of him and at the same time right, right. it's like the gratitude to to an individual who really did have a, a kind of selflessness um, yeah. at the, at the center where he was always interested in something bigger and, and, and greater than himself. Um, and I feel like, you know, that's a value that's missing <laughs> today um, maybe. So, um, you know, there's something mm. in that, but I don't think the journey had to be quite as lonely. And I think that's a lesson that we, we yeah. can take too, you know? Right. Yeah, that was sort of, of course, the melancholy note in the film. It's called Ailey. It's uh, coming out July 23rd, exclusively in New York City, where Alvin Ailey's dance company was born and, right, and um, founded, et cetera. And then uh, it will uh, have a national expansion thereafter. I was lucky enough. I, I did see his, uh, I did see some performance at some point of his uh, um and I got to see a, a live live performance of Revelations, and uh, I've, it, it was mind blowing experience. 
you know? Yeah. So was he really the first African-American with, with a national presence? A touring company like that. Yeah. So Catherine, Catherine Dunham really precedes him in that, um, in that way. But what, but her dance work isn't um, considered truly like modern dance um, because she was herself uh, an anthropologist. And so a lot of her work is kind of a more kind of marriage of dance and and the anthropology work that she was doing in, in Haiti in particular. Okay. Um, so I think she's considered sort of pre-modern <laughs> in that way. Um, so yeah, of, of, you know, modern dance companies, his is kind of the first and certainly the, the largest of scale. Right. So there, there's quite a few uh, folks that owe an allegiance to him and not necessarily even African-American. I think he influenced the whole generation of, of, of modern dance choreographers, correct? And yeah. Yeah, I guess, yeah, the 80s and 90s, there just was an explosion of them. And I'm kind of riffing a little bit because I just had been a for a snapshot. I was lucky I was involved with someone who was working in a dance in the dance world. And so I, I just got to see a lot of dance for a few years. Amazing. And it was this really amazing time, you know, like Bill T. Jones and, and Mark Morris, all those guys. Yeah, uh, that period. Um, so I'm sure everybody wants to know, though. I can't recall. Do you have a dance background? Is that, was that your I do you, not. Everybody wants to know that. And I don't have a dance background <laughs> Can't you all. just make something up? <laughs> I know. It would make the story, uh, you know, so much better if I auditioned no. for the Ailey Company. No, no, um, no. I'm no. sure it's equally as good. As well. <laughs> I don't, um, I don't have a dance background. Um, I l- appreciate the form. I, I discovered dance through um, Ailey. The Ailey Company is the first dance company that I ever saw a live performance of. Yeah, right. Um, and so they were my entryway um, into it. And I have friends who are choreographers and, um, you know, and so I've continued to, to see dance since, um, uh-huh. but no, I wasn't. And so it was, you know, part of the, the kind of great beauty and joy and fear of making this was the sure. learning, the learning curve was steep. <laughs> the only reason I brought it up, I, I, I didn't uh, jump to the conclusion. There was one line also in what I was reading, which said that you and Rennie, there was some sort of language, which was uh, just made me question it, but it was, and Rennie Harris, he is the, the framework is a new production by, right? That's Rennie, correct? Yes, the new yes, production that yes. you shot in real time and current day, right? The latest production that was, which was just uh, also was just, just, just for there's one shot towards the end or one clip where they're finally doing this, you know, and it's just like mind boggling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Easy. Great, yeah. like, set story. We filmed the kind of final run through in the room um, of, the, of the dance work. And that's when Miss Jameson came to see it. And that day, I think they ran it through twice. And so the first time they ran it through, our our gaffer came out of the room and just was like weeping, you know, wow. <laughs> like, like really? not a dance person. On, I mean, it's just that dance when you get a chance to see it and they will be restaging yeah. it um, this coming for this coming city center opening in New York. And then it'll go on tour nationally. And it is just, it's, ex- it's extraordinary. I mean, just so powerful. It is so devastating and beautiful. I mean, it really is just an amazing dance but that day where it was like yeah this dance you know we were all in tears but I, you know when your gaffer comes out and he's like <laughs> yeah, exactly. also moved you're like okay well it is a great opportunity to weigh into seeing i mean if you're if somebody who i i think you know the the beauty of a of a story like this is you you know you don't need to come in with some 
love of, of dance or be a dancer. I mean, you really, this is just an artist's story and um, a pioneer. And it's a great way to be introduced if you're not already a fan or familiar with, with modern dance. This is a great, great way to do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. You, you brought up Judith Jameson, who I never saw in Alan Ailey. I'm not, probably, I wasn't involved in watching dances back that far back, but... I did see her in Sophisticated Ladies on Broadway. Oh, no kidding. Amazing. Yeah, yeah original cast. She was in the original wow. cast with uh, Gregory Hines and uh, Kath- uh, I forget who else it was. There was one other famous dancer involved in there. But so, yeah, I was wondering how that happened, you know, because. Yeah, she actually, so she left the Ailey Company for a short period of time and because she got an opportunity to, to do work on Broadway and, okay. um, you know, I yeah. think the pay scale was probably a little bit better and the stability know. of being, of doing shows here, right. Um, right. staying put for a while. Um, and then, you know, she came back to, to helm the company. Right. So, so uh, those who don't know, Alvin Ailey died. How old was he? Uh, he was, let's see, born Sorry, in 31. I know, Matt. Born in 31 and died in oh. 89. So 50, he, was thir- 50. he was born in 1931? Yep, and died wow. in 89. So 50, 58, is that? Okay. Is my math wow. right there? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that sounds yeah. about right. 31. I didn't realize it was born. Okay. Amazing. Yeah, then she took over the company, right? That was... Yes. I didn't, re- I didn't realize that. Okay, very good. And uh, she she passed away recently, right? No, she's still she's still alive. She's still, I'm like, I just on killed wood, on Judith Jameson. I, I, well, there's a little well, editing. Yeah, no, no, she is still um, around. She is the emeritus artistic uh, director of the right. company still. Right. Um, uh, but um, you know, she's she's wonderful. She's actively trying. You know, she, the torch must be passed on. And I think Robert Battle, the current artistic director, is you know leading with like great vision himself. And so she's a huge clearly. Clearly, uh, yeah. Clearly, well, you know, was that that must have been a, a formidable experience for you to to uh, be there that day, and she was there, as you said, right? Yeah, and you know, it was um, it was really trying to think about, you know, now she's watching this, you know, dance interpretation of the life of, uh, you know, the man who effectively made her career in many mm-hmm. ways. And then, you know, she dedicated her life to carrying on his vision. And so, you know, I knew where the dance was going. And then that, that sort of last moment with my camera, per, uh, my, my camera woman that day and being like, you know, like trainer, you know, to see how she would, you know, react. And I think that that moment where she, you know, here's his, here's Rennie call out Mr. Ailey's name and there's no response. And, and, you know, her right. reaction to that was something that we were just, you know, those are the moments where you say like, I don't know how we're going to get there, but that has to be in the film. Um, yeah. How and, did she get a chance to uh, see the film in its entirety since uh, she did? Yeah. She saw it um, before we uh, screened at Sundance. Um, and I'm grateful that, <laughs> you know, those showing your film to yeah. the people who are in your film is always like a moment of, uh, there's a little bit of trepidation, let's say. Well, and so, say the least, of course. Yeah, yeah. How could there um, not be? So she likes it. I'm glad <laughs> to report. And so is it Sundance 2020? Sundance 2021. 2020. Virtual oh. Sundance. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then, so how did uh, Neon end up? How did that end up happening? Oh my gosh. Like the greatest uh, gift. I mean, we screened it at... at uh, Sundance and they saw the film and 
yeah. uh, got on a call and, um, you know, really, um, obviously they're an amazing distributor and do such great, you know, put out such great films, but I also felt in that, that even in that early conversation, like they just really understood mm-hmm. the, the film and him and what we were trying to do. And they seemed to like be in love with him, uh, you know, as much as we were. So it felt like, you know, a good, a good collaboration would come from that. So we're delighted. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think this, uh, there must, uh, I'm, I'm sure, I, I hope youth are pleased with how it came out. I mean, it, that must, it must've been a very stressful. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we made I, the film during the pandemic, our edit room opened the day New York city shut down. So I had to like, I've been you know, hearing the opposite. Out. Yeah. A lot of the opposite experience where we just got in under the wire, just, you know, just, uh, finished, or, oh, you know, no. so you, we were like, you had to do everything my, remotely, do everything remotely and, you know, scattered to the winds with my team. I didn't start working directly with my editor until like August, September, we would go wear masks and go into a space together and try to work together to, to, you know, cause it's just that, that for me, that kind of nonverbal communication that happens in an edit room is so key and, like sure. just leaning in at the same time or right. you know just like sure. seeing a piece language. of footage yeah and being you like a... <gasps> you know that we all have these kind of physical response or we're bored you're like <laughs> the scene has got to go you know things that aren't working um and just the process of like picking up a phone or getting on a zoom and or sending a very long email I mean it's that you know I I speak a lot I like talking but I I don't like being as verbal as I had to be (laughs) during our edit um so that was tough um but it was also really beautiful because being able to live with this artist during that dark time you know and and having his kind of vision carry us it just was um that felt like such a like a bomb you know uh for the whole team yeah I I think he would have I think he would have uh I think he would have liked this documentary. That's the hope, you know, that's the, yeah. the making a a portrait like this. You sort of are about somebody who's not alive. Yeah. Yeah. And you're sitting with that ghost. I try, you know, to think about, well, if he could come, you know, the best is that he would maybe say, oh, there's things in there that I didn't really want people to know, but it's true. And so therefore, but I respect you as true. But I respect you as an artist, Jamila Wignett, because, and your choices. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? That would be the best. That's, that would be the best. That's, thing. Um, well, you know, an artist should, should, should understand that. Of course, uh, um, it doesn't always happen. Right. So it's going to be in New York City, as I mentioned, exclusively starting July 23rd, Friday, July 23rd. So, and do you know where, where, where is it uh, playing? We may it'll, have to have... Yeah. It'll be at the Eleanor Bunham on the oh, 23rd. Perfect. Yeah. It's just like, right. great great place just across there's a ballet school right there Mm -hmm. isn't it it's new york city ballet and lincoln well well, the new york city ballet is is in the state new york state theater yes yeah right right across the campus exactly so this is fantastic i think a lot of young ballet dancers will come across and 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 see it i'm sure because because there's a still a very close relationship between right ballet and modern dance and modern um increasingly so and i you know it's not in our film but but alvin ailey was one of the first modern dance choreographers to start thinking about 
like really incorporating ballet techniques and yeah, trying to find a cool. marriage between the two. He was not interested in these arbitrary boundaries and boxes around dance, you know? So yeah. it's like, why can't we just um, mix it up? And, um, you know, he really was sort of pushing for that. Right. It comes, it still comes across. I mean, you see it in the, in the various uh, archival, you know, all the archive that the, the, in like the, his whole approach seems to be very, you know, like, using those kind of ballet conventions in terms of yeah he's not a he's not a modern dance choreographer like a Graham or even Lester Horton who he studied under where he has a technique he synthesizes you know he's that great like I'm going to take a little bit from everything and then come up it's more of a kind of style and an, an approach um so I think that's you know I don't know I, I think that's a kind of lovely he's like non-discriminating in his taste in that way you know yeah well, I was grateful for the opportunity to see it. So I'll urge everybody to do so as well. Yeah, and, thanks. You're welcome. It's called Ailey. We we met once before. We did. I was on your show for Town Hall. For Town a Hall. A long time ago, 2013. It, it's, God, is that true? 2013? I mean, I remember being, I think I was even, it was even potentially in your apartment. Yes. Oh my gosh, it was. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not in that apartment anymore. But yeah, well, so who is? Time. I, I know, mean, you know, and they're their 2013 apartment anymore. I mean, anyway. Well, I'm glad to have catch caught up with you again on this project, and happy to do it again on the next one. And maybe we'll be back in person by then. Yeah. Uh, but so yeah, good luck with with the uh, the theatrical. People will be seeing it in theaters in the Eleanor at the Film Center at Lincoln Center at the Eleanor Bunn. So congratulations. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. I had my own ideas. Not just to do a step, but to feel something. He was working at a feverish pitch, totally immersed. People say, why is he doing that now? If you're a black anything in this country, people want to put you into a bag. This is what he took up as his crusade. Alvin's protest was on the stage. I want to feel all the anger and the sense of cursing at the outside room. I wanted to do the kind of dance that could be done for the man on the streets, the people, that it was part of their culture. And that it was universal. HBO's Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, the first film in the Music Box series directed by Garrett Price, who made a film, which I just watched, called Love and Tosha. Um, I caught up with that last night. Uh, I really enjoyed that as well. But the series, the Music Box series, is executive produced by Bill Simmons, which we talk about in the segment. Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage tells the story of a three-day music festival promoted to echo unity and countercultural idealism of the original 1969 concert, but instead devolved into riots, looting, and sexual assaults. The grim outcome earned the event the infamous distinction of the day the 90s died. Woodstock 99 Peace, Love, and Rage focuses on a spotlight on American youth at the end of the millennium in the shadow of Columbine and the looming hysteria of Y2K, pinpointing a moment in time when the angst of a generation galvanized into a seismic cultural shift, 
set to a soundtrack of the era's most aggressive rock bands, including Korn, Limp Bizkit, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Metallica, etc. The film also reappraises the 1960s mythos, revealing hard truths about the dangers of rose-tinted nostalgia in the age of commercialism and bottom-line profits. As I mentioned earlier, Woodstock 99 premieres on HBO and HBO Max today, Friday, July 23rd. And here is my conversation with the director of the documentary, Garrett Price, here only on Film Wax Radio. How are you guys doing today? Welcome to Woodstock. There is a sixth sense that you develop when you spend your life going to venues. Woodstock, baby. I can tell you a hundred feet away what the energy in that venue is going to be like. It was not your parents' Woodstock. We got off the bus and I was like, something's not right. It was like 1,000 degrees. I think we should leave. It's so hot here. Water was $4 a bottle, which is a ridiculous cost. The porta potties unusable. You had kids rolling around in what they thought was mud. In an environment where exploiting women, you could get away with it. You could feel something bubbling. In pop culture, there's this dark energy coming from young white males that entertainment is perpetuating. You have a crowd who are excited, inebriated, and you give them a band to help them release that energy. What do you think is going to happen? How are you, Garrett? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Where are you based? Where I'm are in you Los Angeles. Angeles. You're I'm in West. LA. Okay, yeah. very good. What about you? I'm upstate New York. Oh, this is... Uh, <laughs> You're familiar with these, <laughs> this world, I imagine. Yeah. Well, I'm way too young, of course, to know. <laughs> no. What do you, Woodstock is it? Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I am a little young for the first one. However, I actually went to summer camp, grew up going to summer camp. Only, I actually, Wallkill, New York, which is where the summer camp was, one of the original, lo- was the original location where, you know, Michael Lang and, and, uh, 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 uh all these guys wanted to do it. Yeah, that's where they wanted to face it. But the the good citizens of Wallkill chased them away out of fear. And then, you know, they, of course, they ended up at, at Yasgers, yeah. uh, you know, uh, eventually. But yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm in the Hudson Valley. So, okay, right on. Yeah. I, I, but I've been in New York City all that time before. I just, yeah. I, I moved up here recently. Of course, Woodstock 99, which is the subject of, of your film and of our conversation, was in, based in Rome, New York, which I'm not from, as familiar with. But Yeah, uh, Rome, New York. Yes. Which, you know, did you get over there? And I, I didn't. You know, this is a true pandemic film. We uh, we we started like in March of 2020 and wrapped you know, just a couple of weeks ago. So unfortunately, we were pretty locked down. Um, so I had to use local crews all over the country, which I was bummed because I really wanted to go yeah. explore that part of, of, of America because I've never really been up there before. Well, you can still. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I have to after yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, if you've seen one airstrip, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't come up now. It's probably close to what those ticket, <laughs> well, I was going to say ticket buyers, but maybe that's not even true. Maybe. Yes, the survivors. <laughs> Those who lived through the experience and that were there, one of the villains of the story is the weather, you know, and it was a hundred at points, it was a hundred plus. They were on a tarmac. I mean, it, it was, uh, 
really that much hotter. I mean, if he could have picked a worse spot for that alone. Yeah, I know. Right, and so, that, oh, so yeah, and that's one of the things that they couldn't control. I mean, location, right. yeah, but the weather, you know, there's yeah. all kinds of factors in the story, I think, to get where we started to how it ends. Right. The film, of course, is called Woodstock 99, Peace, Love and Rage, which is a great name for it. And of course, you know, you have people representing all sides of the uh, reasoning and rationale for whether this was a, how, how monumental a failure uh, this, this festival was. But really what, what the documentary seems to try to do is give a context for it, Absolutely. provide all the context. Yeah, those are the stories I like to tell as a filmmaker. I like to use kind of this macro or micro event to tell a macro idea. Um, and this, you know, this festival was, for me, it was a window into the late 90s, um, a time I can, came of age in personally, a time that this allowed me to reflect on myself and how I was behaving in the late 90s. Um, and I think a lot of people, and I think that was what's so interesting when you really look at the cultural context surrounding this event, um, and an event that was marketed to the one that happened in the late 60s. Um, but again, this was a different time. And I think there's something to be said about, you know, pushing certain ideals on a, a younger generation. Um, and I think a lot of us are guilty of that. I'm guilty of it with my kids. But I think it's also, you know, every generation should figure their own thing out. I've, if I've learned anything from this film, that's one of the things. Uh, yeah, generations can figure out what they need, what they want. To Every just... generation throws a hero up the pop charts. One songwriter once wrote. <laughs> their own, their, their own heroes, you know. Absolutely. But oh, so maybe I mean, perhaps I may I pose this as a question: Is do you feel like maybe a major error was trying to um, to do that to try to retrofit this concert? Uh, which was speaking to a very different generation at a very different time into that old branding of Woodstock. I mean, I live just about a half hour, if that, from Woodstock, New York. And, you know, it's a it's it's a beautiful spot with great people, mind you, but it's also a branded yeah. place like it's it uses that to bring people in and help the economy of the town, you know. Absolutely. I th yeah, I think I think that is one of the many factors of what happened that weekend. But, you know, you know, truthfully, I talk about it. I think generations are nostalgic for the decade they were born in. You know, to me, the Woodstock 99 generations, nostalgic for the 70s. I think that's why the 90s are so popular right now, because you have these 20 year olds that are really interested in stories like this now. And they address like the 90s now. So I think that that's one of the problems of many. You know, you're pushing you know, these kind of loftier countercultural ideals on a generation that didn't really care, you know, for some of this stuff. And I, I mean, we bring that up with a lot of the attendees that were there and the, the performers they even performed. And then, you know, you mix that with, you know, some of the things that are surrounding the culture of the time. You know, this is an era of like girls gone wild and like lad mags, like FHM and Maxim where, there's a lot of objectifying women. So you take these countercultural ideals of like free love and you mix them with kind of this attitudes towards like women at this time, you put them on a tarmac in the middle of summer in the late nineties, it's going to create a toxic environment. And it, it surely yeah. did. There were some really tragic repercussions of this, I think. Right. And so 
water water bottles at four dollars a pop. It's a very it's a, yes. You so know, it, there was a lot it, of it didn't take a lot to push these people, a lot of the people over over the the edge. But yeah, well, I, I should make a disclaimer. I worked at Sony Music then. We released the album, if you want to call it a soundtrack. We re, we released the uh, or the album version of Woodstock '99. But I just it's remember as a massive hit too. I imagine because. I don't know about was, that. Uh, maybe. Like, I mean, surely was, you're right. The lineup would have, you'd assume so, right? Yeah, I think I think the CD sales were, were huge for, uh, for what's that? But again, this was the zeitgeist of the time. This, this, this was the top of the Billboard charts, this lineup at that time. Um, yeah. So it speaks a lot about what was connecting with, I think, the attendees at the festival. Yeah, you touch on this a drop in the documentary, but it's interesting. Ninety nine. This is the tip of the just at the tipping point where downloading became a thing. Right? Don't you have a segment about Napster in the film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so it, it's an interest. It's a very specific time in the music industry as well. How in the world did you get Michael Lang and John? Sher- how do you pronounce this? Share John Share. Yeah. Cher. How did you get those guys? I mean, they. I will say, especially John, dug in his heels. Um, and his being very self-defensive. Def- I mean, he was um, obviously probably had a lot of lot of reasons for that. But um, how did you get those guys to participate? I I asked them and I said I'm telling the story, but I, I want to. You know, is an HBO doc yet? Or yeah, well, but you know, and I and I told them, and I think it's true. I go, I'm using this festival as a lens to the culture of the time, and really raising the question if the festival was a victim of its time or were there other things at play? And I, you know, I was like, look, I'm telling the story no matter what. I'm when did you interview, life. sorry to interrupt you, yeah. Eric. And when did you interview those guys, those two guys? Uh, I think last December, I want to say, before the end of the year. 2020, 2020, December, 2020. 2020. So Woodstock 50 was already, yeah. was already, 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 had already fallen through, fallen yeah. out. All right. So man, Michael, it's, it's just, to me, it's just shocking that Lang still agreed to do it. Based on the, the enormous controversy around 99, easily considered a, f- a failure. And then also 50 being another failure before it even happened. It didn't happen. It got canceled. You know, again, I, I just offered a platform to tell their side of the story. And, okay. you know, they've been, I, you know, this is something that has lived with these two guys for 20 plus years now, this, this thing. And, and I, don't, I know it can't be easy. You know, right. they yeah. don't want this to be their legacy. And I don't think it is. I think they both have done incredible things in the music world, honestly. Um, at the same time, you know, there's things that they still believe. And I, 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 I question some of those things. Uh, and I think it's important right to question those you. things. There's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of finger pointing that goes along with this festival. And like, and like, again, most importantly is for me was this cultural context and finding some of these threads from the late 90s to where we are now um, without having to implicitly say that. And I think you see a lot of things of how, we, how we've ended up from there to now, you know, in kind of some of these complicated societal things going on now. And I think it's really interesting. I think it's the power of documentary storytelling. I wonder if John will feel like he came off well. There were, there were of course, cases reported of sexual assault yeah. And he, he, he sort of says something that's, it, you know, right or wrong, he, he, it's just, it's also incredibly, you can look at it as what he said is brave because yeah. 
Right. It's the Me Too time where, you know, part of that is this cancel culture nature. If you come say anything that is unpopular at the moment, you know, it, it could it could actually take it could actually damage your right. your career quite a bit. So, and he he kind of put some a good deal of the onus on the young women. Not all of it. Yeah, but, you know, I, I think John, you know, I think it's it's something he believes and he's, he's got a record saying oh, of course. Not, no, totally. not, not just not just to me he's got a record saying it before in the past and you know and i think like i like john and michael a lot i think they're really nice guys and i'm forever grateful they participated and, and again yeah it's great that they did yeah but i think also john represents a lot of people from that era and what they believe honestly um again a, a big theme of this movie are kind of you know power dynamics and how they were changing and how they were in the late nineties, whether it's generational or gender based or racially based or class based. And it's something I really, that excited me in digging in and exploring and how they were changing. This is an onset of message boards and the internet and Napster. And those are shifts in power dynamics as far as kind of giving power back to the people a little bit. You found it like, you started finding like-minded people. And, you know, I think all those things are really an interesting time and kind of, changing our world for you know for better or for worse in some cases well the name of the documentary again is called woodstock 99 peace love and rage directed by garrett price and it's premiering on hbo on july 23rd at nine o'clock p.m across time zones and and then and also streaming on hbo max it's part of a series right it's the first in a series of films that that the uh sports writer turned producer bill simmons is producing for HBO, I guess, in this series of music documentaries? Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. There's some great stuff coming down the pipeline. It's kind of a sneak preview of the series, I think, coming in the fall. So, yeah, I've just been, I feel very lucky that this is, it's to lead it off. They've been incredibly supportive along with HBO and um, telling the story and getting it out there. Do you feel like, I, really, I appreciate your candor and and the film really does go in deep. I mean, you know, it it's a very uncensored look at or unfiltered, however you want to put it, you know, look at what happened over those days of that summer of uh, 1999. And we're, it's actually the 20, is it the 23rd? It's right in that, right? That fell 22 years, 22 years, 22 years. So it's right on the anniversary. Do you think there was a, I mean, it's a broad question, but maybe it's impossible to answer. Do you think it could have been avoided? I mean, do you think like this was a fait accompli on some level? The heat, the airstrip, the, I mean, you know, you, you'd think, okay, let's anticipate the following things, right? Rain, heat. I mean, as a festival organizer, you, you would be anticipating right. a lot of this stuff, right? Not all of it. I mean, Michael Lang was there for, because <laughs> he invented Woodstock they did the exact same thing. They tore down the fences, right? They broke in. Security fell apart very quickly. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's a tough question. I, I think there's a lot of things that could have they could have done better to for the well. Yeah, I'm just sort of wondering, well, even they, in the abstract. Well, I, I think, I'm not here to. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I, I think, feel like yeah. I think honestly, they kind of have fallen victim to their own mythology of Woodstocks that they'll just work out. You know, mm-hmm. people will just come together in this idyllic setting this wasn't the most idyllic setting but come together and humanity will over will win and i just think that there's a danger in that you still need to take care of people you know <laughs> basic human needs and i feel like that was that was a bit ignored um at the you know 
at the expense of trying to make profits. And, you know, it, 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 it's hard not to kind of look at them as hippies turned capitalists, which I think a lot of people from that generation are, you know? Yeah. Well, I do remember, I think I was away because uh, it said the Al Green canceled. He was supposed to be one of the acts. I was very lucky. I, you know, I, I, I started going to summer camp in 1972 and it really was right after that Woodstock, the, the whole yeah. vibe at my camp was just like the people that could have stepped right out of Woodstock and were <laughs> at my camp. Yeah. It was, it was like that. I have great memories. Did I interrupt my, I think we, I interrupted myself about the film, but we should mention that also you've got you besides John and Michael, the organ, original organizers of Woodstock 99, you have, you know, at festival goers, not, and you know, some of them who admit they were part of this, the, the, uh, what do you call the mob mentality, you know, because all these kids ended up going on this rage essentially, and they destroy, destroying the whole grounds and the, and the, the festival, uh, infrastructure, you know, setting fires, most notably, you know, some of those guys you talk to and yeah. you talk to musicians that were played there, including, Jonathan Davis of Corn and Moby, who just did this show, my podcast actually just recently. Oh, nice. Yeah. Where is there anybody that um, wouldn't participate? Yeah, no, I, I talked to, we wanted to talk to everybody, you know? And yeah, yeah, yeah. This has, been, this has been kind of the catch 22 of making a pandemic movie because a lot of these artists were at home. They were sitting around, they weren't touring. So we were able right, to get right, a lot right, of these interviews. Right, yeah, I think yeah. if it, they weren't, it would have been a lot harder, you know? Um, do, they, do you think they felt um, in a in an, uh, a tricky situation how they I talked think, about it? No, I, 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 the people I talked to were were so more authentic and open and self reflective than I ever imagined they were going to be. That's and great. I it was really amazing. I think it comes across in the film the way people were talking about it. Um, yeah, there's musicians that just I think they've just kind of swept under the rug and wanted to move on with their lives and their careers. Um, and I totally respect that. Um, but, you know, it was it was important. For, you know, this is a time where musicians were kind of a scapegoat for some of the issues that were going on in the world, like Columbine and things like that. You know, it, it, it and I wanted to kind of bring that up also. Yeah, Again, me too. And I didn't want to like, I didn't want to say, oh, it's this is all new metal's fault. And I don't think that's true. I think that genre of music, as short-lived as it was, it spoke to this generation. And I wanted to more explore why did that music speak to this generation? And how do we get to that music from where we started the decade with Nirvana and that idealism? And how do we get to the nihilism of these bands? And I think that's what I, again, this allowed me to kind of do a case study, I guess, of, of yeah, American yeah. youth culture and how we move from like the anti-establishment, we'll never sell out, sell our music to like the corporate America at the late 90s. And I think it's really interesting. Right. Um, uh, how we got there and, and it's, it's it's there's a there's a constant cycle uh, i guess also or has been in the music industry where things start off at the grassroots right like you know rap or blues maybe 100 years uh, 70 years before or something like that and then eventually it's you know white guys with ties figure out how to yeah. commercialize it and make a profit and then it becomes corporate and then it gets rejected and the next generation discovers a new right there's a cycle and that of it's course a pendulum. it's a pendulum right it just keeps going back and forth back yeah and maybe forth. it's more of a pendulum than a, and you know it's a natural sort of thing you know the festivals of course are a byproduct of that and will reflect where we're at as a as a culture and as a you know what's going on in the music industry at the time absolutely yeah, i think that's right especially woodstock stories i think woodstocks even the 70 way there's such a 
you know, this like, again, like this mirror up to culture at the time. And I think Woodstocks are just, it's just as important as the people that went to Woodstock as the bands playing there. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's my hope. I do that too with this film. Winding down a little bit here. Oh, that two last thing. One is I want to, your question, the film really also poses this question intrinsic in it, it which is, are musicians like Fred Durst, who got heavily criticized during the festival for inciting violence in the crowd and maybe playing to their worst character? I don't know how to describe it, but you know what I'm saying. They were kind of yeah. helping to cre- create an, uh, uh, the rage was there. There was that energy and they kind of fed into it is a better way of putting it. I mean, are musicians, the, the, the film asks, are musicians ultimately responsible to whatever the audience ends up feeling from, or is, right. it, is that their role? Right. And I, it's something I wanted to pose. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, personally, I think it, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough thing because, you know, yes, there's probably a responsibility, especially at the time. It's so interesting watching these performances of how these bands and these, these artists can commandeer the crowd. No one's no one has cell phones. They're they're hundred percent. Right, right. This is ninety nine. There were cell phones, but you're there for they yeah, ran out. Of, yeah. If you brought them, they ran out. Yeah, there's no smartphones and there's yeah. no way to charge them. So they're just locked in hundred percent. And like, I mean, Fred and John, they're like they're maestros. They're, you know, they're composers. They're just you know they can really just do whatever they want up there. And it's 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 fascinating to watch the power they have up on that stage and you know the response you get from these crowds. So. It's hard to say because also, you know, they, they're hired to put on a Limp Bizkit show, you know, Red I don't, think, peppers I don't think they're doing, yeah, they're not doing anything different than they ever had in a club, you know? So, and, you know, I think also experience probably comes with some of the stuff. These are young bands at the time. Um, you know, I don't think Limp Bizkit was. Red Hat Chili Peppers. Maybe no, not. Well, not Chili yeah. Peppers, but like, you know, Metallica, Rage Against the Machine, they, they purposely amped it down a little bit in their stuff. You know, they, they mm. were kind of. Right. You know, Metallica changed their set list. Uh, you know, so I think they could sense things that were going on. Right. You know, where, you know, there's also the pressure of a Woodstock performance. This is a once in a lifetime performance. Right. So right, I think you want to yes. step it up. So I think there's, it's, it's a difficult thing. And again, I bring up Columbine and a lot of scapegoating with entertainment and musicians at the time. So it's, it's, these are just kind of things posed. I don't personally as a filmmaker point fingers. I'm just kind of, bringing up these objective points of views and, and let the audience decide let the audience decide That's, yeah you know. uh, so it's woodstock 99 peace love rage again it'd be on hbo and hbo max on the 22nd anniversary july 23rd starts streaming and playing at nine o'clock and i just wanted to ask you on a personal note i have not seen your prior film love antosha but even just last night i i for whatever reason anton yelchin who you're i think it's the documentary about him right they, uh, is it a feature or is it a short? It's a feature. Yeah. It's a feature. I haven't seen it. I I would love to see it because yeah, uh, please, I, think it's I just thought of him yesterday. I think you know, and how what a tragedy that was. It's I, it's, it's it's a very different type of film of this. Yeah. Is this film. It's a, it's a very coming of age documentary told through the perspective of Anton. Um, uh, I think it's streaming on Amazon Prime right now. So oh, very good. Uh, yeah, check it out. I um, will. I'll find it then. Good. All right. Well, let's do this again. <laughs> I hope we get a chance. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, Thank you really so nice. much, man. I appreciate you spreading the word about the film. My pleasure. All right. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. They had the crowd going insane. People were dehydrated, passing out. 
There are a lot of stupid humans around here. We walked off stage and we're like, get out of here. Like, we need to leave right now. There's no rest, there's no breaks, there's no rhythm, there's no come down. It's gonna crash. The laws of normal society just don't apply here. Kids were petrified out there. This wasn't Woodstock 69. There is an umbilical cord between the dark, sexual, cultural underbelly in the country at that time to where we are now. A lot of that energy just wound up in chat rooms and Reddit boards in 2021. The question quickly became not how could this have happened, but how could it not? Thank you, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash filmwaxradio. And for as little as $3 a month, you can be a uh, part of the Filmwax community and uh, get exclusive content, get thank yous on the show, etc. Please do consider uh, helping a show like mine. Thank you so much for that. We'll be back. We'll be back with another show right here with you all summer long. Please remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash filmwaxradio. We're also on, of course, social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Some outstanding guests coming up. So engage with us and you'll be the first to know about what's happening with the show. Thank you so much, everybody. Take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Until next time. Saw a picture of you today Taking years before I found you Your face was like a cloudless sky Sparks of angels played around you And your hair tumbled long like waves Were crashing on your brow 